Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today, we're talking with Cameron Strang about his book, Frontiers of Science, Imperialism and Natural Knowledge in the Gulf South Borderlands, 1500 to 1850. Thank you for joining us, Cameron. Oh, thank you so much. This is a very welcome break from social isolation with my, my two kids. So. <laughs> well, let's start with the big picture in your book. The traditional view of science in the Republic is that learned men typically in Philadelphia would send out expeditions into the wilderness, gathering natural knowledge from the edges of the early Republic, and then communicating with other learned men, typically in London. What's wrong with that picture? What is it missing? The main thing it's missing is the vast majority of American people and the vast majority of American space, that when we limit our definition of science so narrowly that we're only thinking about you know, a handful of people that would be, say, recognized as scientists by their contemporaries in London, right? We're really missing the much larger texture of what studying the natural world was like in early America. And throughout the book, I use a term called natural knowledge that really includes science, things like you know, studying the stars, studying geography, studying other people, studying rocks, studying plants. But that these pursuits were not just limited to self-congratulatory scientists, but that a whole range of people were doing this all throughout the continent, including natives, free and enslaved blacks, all sorts of people of European descent, including Spanish and French Creoles. And that once we include them in the story, I argue, the picture of what American science starts to look like becomes very different. That it's no longer this story of the sudden transition from science in a British colonial context to science in a Republican context after independence. It's more the story of the persistence of encounters throughout the borderlands continuing to generate knowledge for all of the peoples involved, not just for these Anglo scientists. And one of my main arguments in the book is that these encounters were able to persist because the United States, just like Spain, Britain, and France before them, was an expansive imperial power. And they continued pushing into the borderlands and spurring all these sorts of encounters that then affected how and why individuals of all of these groups studied nature. When we first see organized efforts to generate natural knowledge in the areas that become the borderlands, who was involved? What did those efforts look like? My book doesn't dwell very much on the pre-Columbian era, but I think it's important to point out that organized pursuit of nature had been going on for thousands of years in the region. And in the era immediately preceding the arrival of Europeans, there were these so-called mound builder cities throughout the Gulf South that in which high-ranking chiefs would often patronize priests or other specialists of different kinds to go study different kinds of nature. Sometimes you know, the more esoteric aspects that we might think of as spiritual, but also, you know, going to explore resources of distant regions and that sort of thing. Once Europeans started going to the Gulf South, and this was the first place in North America where Europeans began invading and colonizing in the early 1500s, they too actually had a relatively similar set of organizing principles that leaders in Europe, whether those are intellectual leaders in scientific institutions or monarchs or what have you, they would send out expeditionaries to acquire different sets of knowledge. And for the Spaniards who were the, the first, you know, the conquistadors and such who were the first to go into this region, they set a really 
important and influential precedent, I think, in that they combined their search for natural knowledge, geographic knowledge, knowledge about valuable resources, about the peoples they encountered. They combined this kind of research with violence. And one of my big arguments in the book is that violence, in fact, shaped how individuals throughout the borderlands studied the natural world. And this really began with the Spanish until the 1670s when France and England began competing for the region as well. And one of the big pursuits in this era of imperial competition, when these three powers are trying to decide who controlled which territories, was, of course, cartography, because that became a means of exaggerating and staking claims to these different spaces. And then you start to see French and English men of science as well sort of following these same patterns established earlier by Spain. And once this European competition for the Gulf South started, should we think of the Europeans dominating and directing the production and gathering of natural knowledge? I think it's important to understand that Europeans created a context in which all of these groups studied natural knowledge in the sense that they were the ones creating this new world of imperialism that hadn't really existed before. That said, the the ways in which they envisioned imperial control happening versus the way it actually happened on the ground did not always correspond at all. In the late 18th century, for example, when Spain was in charge of the entire Gulf South from Florida you know, through Texas and really on to California, um, they had controlled most of the continent, or in theory, had sovereignty over the most of the continent, I should say. It was mostly still native country. Their ambitions to learn about the Gulf South and use that knowledge to integrate the region more effectively into their global empire really hinged on all sorts of people on the ground, including indigenous experts, enslaved individuals, and all sorts of European-descended subjects. And what Spain ended up struggling with, and what the United States would struggle with for several decades after as well, was that all of these individuals on their ground were trying to leverage their knowledge for their own benefit. And in the process, were really able to manipulate or obscure the kind of knowledge that made it to Spanish officials, both in places like New Orleans and also in Madrid, who were trying to use this knowledge to make decisions. But it wasn't just that these people on the ground always had power to benefit from their knowledge as well. They too were generally in a position of weakness. Pretty much all of the groups competing for the Gulf South were, none were dominant, right? All were sort of struggling with each other. So, for example, when some enslaved Africans would attempt to use knowledge brought from the Guinea coast, as it was called, to sort of raise their own status within plantation hierarchies, such pursuits would often backfire and they'd end up in prison or worse at the hands of imperial officials. So they didn't necessarily have the ability to benefit from their knowledge either. So I think this all really calls into question this idea that, you know, knowledge is power. Not necessarily, right? That you have to have enough power to benefit from the knowledge you have in the first place. If not, it can actually get you into more trouble than than you were in to begin with, I found. When do you see the early republic, the United States, entering the competition for knowledge about the Gulf South? So the Gulf South was the first Spanish-American territory that in which the United States expanded. And of course, they would continue to do so both formally and informally for the next 200 plus years. It was in the 1790s, though, that the United States first started to advance into the Spanish territory of West Florida, Spanish Louisiana, and then eventually into East Florida. And one of the things that I look at in the book is the role of astronomy in this, because, you know, we usually think of astronomy as 
stargazing to understand the heavens. But in the early modern period, this was very much a science dedicated to understanding geography on Earth that you studied the positions of stars and their movements so that you could accurately create maps or draw boundary lines, all of which was critical to the United States and Spain as they were both seeking to establish new claims to this region. And one of the really interesting things I found is that astronomers who had been living in the region during the Spanish period were able to perpetuate their influence into the era of U.S. rule and really perpetuate what had been a colonial set of relationships between themselves and officials in which they were able to leverage their position on the ground and their kind of unique local ability to do stargazing in the region to achieve better influence, better pay, better relationships, etc. with U.S. officials. Uh, For example, I look a lot at this man named William Dunbar, who had lived in Spanish West Florida for decades before U.S. rule. And during that time, he'd established relationships with the Spanish governors in the region in which they gave him enormous tracts of land. They gave him huge pay benefits, all of this material benefits um, in exchange for his astronomical expertise and his access to instruments, because he was really one of the very few people in this region who had this skill. So when the United States takes over in 1798 to his home territory of Natchez in West Florida, very quickly you see Dunbar switching the same sort of relationship to the new distant governor of the region, Thomas Jefferson. And he quickly establishes this long-distance exchange with Jefferson in which he constantly demands better pay, better tax breaks, all sorts of benefits in exchange for his expertise. He basically calls out Jefferson and saying, you know, if you are going to act like an empire, you need to treat us the way an empire should. You need to pay us as befits an imperial power. And I think it's a really interesting moment in which he's both, he's sort of teaching Jefferson how an empire should go about organizing science in its distant territories. And he's drawing on his experience with the Spanish empire to do that. As the United States expanded into these new territories, you write in your book that having a perceived capacity for being able to do science became a measure of whether these newly incorporated populations could actually become citizens. Could you describe that episode for us? Sure. So one of the things that I kept coming across in my research was that first Spanish and French observers, people from Spain and France itself who were visiting the colonies, and then after 1800 or so, Anglo-Americans, they were constantly writing about the what they understood to be the intellectual abilities of people throughout the Gulf South. And what was really interesting to me is that I'd expected them to write about mental abilities of Native Americans and African Americans. This was, of course, sort of a common ethnographic discourse at the time. But they were also really interested, these Anglo-Americans, in writing about the intellectual capacities of Spanish Creoles, French Creoles, Menorcans, all of these other minority groups, or majority groups for a while, of these other ethnicities throughout the region. And what, what kept coming up in their discourse is they're comparing these individuals' ability for Republican citizenship with that of Anglo-Americans. And what ends up being the crucial divide here is that most of these Anglo observers agree that Spanish and French Creoles are too ignorant to be U.S. citizens. But they also believe that they're capable of learning this. Whereas when they start looking at enslaved Africans and natives, they start to make a different argument. They say they're too ignorant to be uh, U.S. citizens, 
but they'll never be able to. So they're drawing this racial division between different types of ignorance, I suppose, and some in arguing that race is a kind of inherent limiter on one's intellectual potential, which of course reflects kind of larger Atlantic debates about the changing nature of race in the early 1800s. What I find is really interesting in the United States is that these debates really come out of this context of imperialism and their own encounters with people in the borderlands as the United States expands. And I think it it very much contributes to my overarching argument that imperialism and expansion into the borderlands has a, at least has a very very large influence over how Anglo-Americans understand nature. You know, this isn't just nature and peoples. This isn't just a new perspective that comes out of this novel condition of independence after 1776. Their intellectual perspectives are shaped by this persistent context of imperialism. As the United States expanded into the borderlands to its south and southwest, there was also an expansion of cotton and sugar plantations and an expansion of slavery. Were there parallel changes in American science? Yes, and I I think one of the really pernicious and strange legacies in the historiography of American science is that when we think of what American science was, we almost inevitably think of Northeastern places, whether this is Philadelphia, New York, Boston. And we really neglect the fact that all of the rest of this territory was also America and also engaged in all sorts of scientific pursuits. And one of the the themes I draw in the later chapters of the book is how in the antebellum United States, these power relationships surrounding slavery, especially masters' violent power over the enslaved, created this really rich, if extremely brutal, context for producing knowledge. And I look at this specifically in the context of geology. I look at how a handful of planters in Mississippi and Alabama are able to use not only the wealth that they generate from growing cotton on their plantations, but also using enslaved laborers, the networks of exchange that are based around the cotton economy to really make themselves not only participants in a kind of national and international geological scene, but really leading patrons in it. And this is something that I think has really been forgotten in the history of American science, that planters themselves had almost unparalleled access to labor, to capital, all of the things that are useful for doing these kind of large-scale scientific excavations needed for sciences like geology. And I think a lot of our neglect of this has really stemmed from a, a kind of assumption that slavery equaled barbarism, and thus there was no sort of science worth mentioning going on in the South. I'm not saying that slavery wasn't barbaric, it certainly was, but it doesn't mean that the the violence inherent in it couldn't be channeled into producing scientific knowledge. And I think once you start bringing in that more brutal context of where a lot of these advances in geology came from, you know, it makes us uh, doubt a little bit our sort of assumptions that science is a inherently sort of peaceful and wholesome thing that whether it's through warfare or slavery, a lot of times knowledge of the natural world, even in kind of mundane sciences like geology, in this case, ultimately stems from a master's power to torture and kill his slaves and extract labor from them and wealth. And as the United States expanded, the Seminoles in Florida were among the last Native peoples to hold out in the Southeast, the Gulf South. How did those three wars, how did that conflict affect American science? 
The Second Seminole War in particular was the largest U.S.-Indian War in terms of its length, in terms of how much it cost for the United States. And it was both a, an extraordinary struggle for the United States. I mean, they expected this to be a quick victory over Native groups, and instead it lasted for seven years. But it was also a chance to learn about Florida in ways they never had before, that Florida had always been this kind of mysterious frontier in which a lot of scientists couldn't have access to this because of persistent Seminole power and such. And with the coming of the Second Seminole War, we see almost a mirror image of what the Spanish were doing in the same place 300 years earlier, in which scientific exploration of lands, resources, waterways is completely conjoined with military invasion, that scientists become embedded with U.S. Army forces. And these scientists are able really for the first time to map interior Florida, to report about its resources and weather and topography and all of these kind of things. And one of the sciences that they are most interested in is craniology or phrenology. And you see a shocking number, really, of U.S. Army officers decapitating deceased Seminoles, boiling their heads so they can get to you know, the, the skull underneath, and then either doing sort of amateur phrenology with their military friends in camp or shipping these skulls off to national leaders in craniology, guys like Samuel George Morton in Philadelphia. And as with so many of these other practices, it's the context of violence in which these skulls are being collected affects their analysis, that you start to see phrenologists looking at seminal skulls and finding evidence that this, this people is so inherently warlike that they're never going to stop fighting and they're destined to go extinct, which is very strange, not only because phrenology is basically a made-up science, but also really strange because these same phrenologists were looking at skulls of Creek Indians and making really opposite conclusions and saying that you know, Creek skulls showed this evidence of a capacity for civilization and thus they would not go extinct. And the strange thing is, is that both the Creeks and the Seminoles were both these multi-ethnic confederacies really consisting of the same biological ancestors in many ways. But you know these very different conclusions being drawn from skulls collected in a context of violence. And that these characterizations really ended up defining the Seminoles as a separate ethnicity in the eyes of Anglo-Americans. So Cameron, you've brought in new peoples, new activities, new contexts into the history of early American science. Can you tell us how this has changed your view of the development of American science? Yes. And for me, it is a much darker picture in a lot of ways. <laughs> a lot darker than I had thought of American science when I had started the research on this project a decade ago or something and had been you know, drawing my opinions largely from published work. That instead, I find it really hard not to see the influence of imperialism really from 1500 up to the present in US science. And whether that's in how they interpret seminal skulls in the 1800s, how they go about exploring the West with largely through army conquest um, in the late 1800s, how they study and analyze other peoples and places during the era of overseas imperialism in the early 1900s, and really how you know, American science took shape or continued to develop in the post-World War II era in which this kind of global competition with the Soviet Union had such an enormous impact on U.S. science. So I've really started to imagine the whole, <laughs> the whole thing, really, as this sort of ongoing 
project to produce knowledge in a context fundamentally shaped by imperialism, by the violence that comes from imperialism and the competition with other imperial powers that comes with expansion of you know, economic and political power. This is not to say that liberty and democracy did not have some place in shaping American science. And I think they did, especially in the early 1800s. But my point is that these shifts were very limited in terms of the individuals who experienced them, the places that were most influenced by them. Um, and that when we look at the rest of the territory claimed by the United States, which of course continued to expand from the late 1700s through to the mid 20th century, we're looking at all that other space American science starts to look very different. It starts to look like something that grows out of violent conquest and much less out of benevolent principles like liberty and democracy. And in other words, it starts to make the United States and science within it start to look a whole lot more like science in other empires, places like Britain and France, and much less exceptional than we like to congratulate ourselves that it is. Well, Cameron, thank you for sharing your work with us and for helping us get a fuller picture of where we've been. And thank you. This has been a real pleasure. And it's fun to think about this book again a couple of years after it's been out. And I really appreciate the chance to do so. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trust, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.